0: Welcome to the 10th episode of the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots Off the Ground, Security in Transitions from Middle East and Beyond. In the series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon systems and cyber weapons. My name is Amin Luthvi and I will be the co-host for the series along with my colleague, Alessandro Arduino. We're very glad to have with us today Candice Rondeau, a professor of practice in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University and a senior fellow with the Center on the Future of War. Professor Rondeau is an expert on private military companies who has written extensively on Russian private military and footprint of hybrid warfare. An expert on international security affairs, she's previously served as a senior program officer at the U.S. Institute and as a strategic advisor to the U.S. Special Inspector General for Afghanistan's reconstruction.
1: Professor Rondo, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, in our previous podcast, we have been discussing the role of private security and private military from a Western point of view and also from a Chinese point of view, interviewing a leading Chinese private security company. But following today's podcast, we want to start to look more into uh, the Russian setting of private security and private military company. Uh, following this podcast, we will uh, have an interview with a well-known Russian private security company that is specialized in maritime security. But uh, we would love to start this new set of our podcast looking uh, especially at your very well-received publication, that is Decoding the Wagner Group, analyzing the role of private military security contractor in Russian proxy warfare. As uh, you look uh, at the Wagner Group uh, in the Middle East and beyond, uh, my first question will be, we can consider truly the Wagner Group, uh, a private military company, or it is just uh, a hybrid tool for Moscow foreign policy, let's say like the little green man uh, in in
2: Donbass. So um, first, thank you for having me. Uh, It's it's great to be here talking with you about this really interesting and unique um, time in the history of military evolution, especially for Russia. Um, you asked the question about sort of where does Russian private military security contracting fit into uh, Russia's overall military posture, its strategy, um, what is the relationship essentially, and the, the relationship on the surface may seem complicated to those who are less familiar with the history of the evolution of the Russian military over the last 30 years, and I think One thing that's important to note is that um, a lot of analysts have been absent from that conversation for a long time because the focus of the Middle East has been so um, drawn to the question of terrorism and um, ISIS and other groups, Al-Qaeda operating in in the region. Uh, Having said all that, uh, Russian military private contractors evolved out of two... Big moments in Russian military history and also kind of Russian history generally in in, re, in the recent past the first obviously is the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, precipitated a, a, a huge shift in the way the state controlled aspects of the military industrial complex so what was once a kind of monolithic semi monolithic enterprise began to be reorganized in a in the 90s in a very chaotic manner. Um, and then progressively after Putin uh, became president and began to lead the country in a new direction, um, there was a little bit more concerted effort to reorganize along the lines of a military force that would mirror um, or be a peer to uh, the United States and other Western militaries in that um, it had a logistical arm uh, that could provide support for um, critical infrastructure. So for instance, we know uh, early on, uh, one of the first experiments with Russian private military contractors was in Iraq, uh, where there was already an existing relationship between Russia and Iraq. uh, And when the war began in 2003, uh, you know, already there was there were Russians on the ground supporting the building of the electrical grid in Iraq, right? And that had been going on for 10 years, building pipelines. So um, on the one hand, this has been a phenomenon that's been around for a long time, Um, but what has changed and, and this is sort of where the little green men piece comes in is that, you know, starting around 2012, 2013, um, as another phase of military reform began, there was a conversation being had in Moscow, in the Kremlin, um, a debate, in fact, about um, you know, developing special forces in a different way and also creating capacity to deploy um, in a much more movable way. And, and low uh, existing organizations that had already begun uh, working in primarily maritime, private military security uh, began to um, prepare for different types of operations. And and Ukraine was the first instance where we saw them deployed um, in small uh, movable, again, maneuverable troop formats, reconnaissance, uh, small reconnaissance battalions um, that would then break down. But the the thread here uh, historically, again, in terms of military history is the tactics, the culture Uh, very much remains the same all the way going back to the to the revolutionary times. Um, It's sort of, you know, hit and run, deep behind the lines, um, primarily offensive scout operations. And that's, I think, what everybody is surprised by when you talk about the Wagner Group or uh, private military security contracting today.
1: Uh,
0: Thank you for that uh, very detailed answer. To follow up, one of the questions that we raised, even when we were talking to Chinese private security companies, was the level of interaction between them and Beijing. So in case of the PMSCs in Russia, what kind of control does the Kremlin have? Is it fair to say that their basic role is to give the, China, to give the, give the Russian state plausible deniability?
2: So nothing is mutually exclusive in the world of Russian military affairs. You can both you know, desire to have plausible deniability and also want other capabilities. And um, I think what we can say about Russian PMSCs is they certainly serve an important purpose in terms of logistical support for military technical agreements and contracts that exist Uh, with various countries that Russia deals with, uh, you know, in Africa, the Middle East. And the primary relationship is one, uh, as it's really not arm's length at all, it's quite close, uh, in which state-run enterprises that work on these contracts essentially uh, control the movements, the mission, the operational objectives um, of the military contractors who are deployed out to places like Syria, Libya, and elsewhere. At the same time, the true evolution of the deniability part began, yes, in Ukraine, but really was accelerated by Syria uh, for two reasons. First, Russia was very clear, Putin was very clear, Lavrov was very clear from the outset of the Syrian engagement that they would continue to fulfill their contracts and their obligations. Uh, with the Syrian government, with the Assad regime, despite the fact that the UN uh, was looking at sanctions and the US was already beginning to to call very heavily for sanctions and move on sanctions. Uh, In essence, Russia told the world, we don't give a damn about your sanctions, we're going to deliver not only because we, we care about Assad, but because we care about the money we might lose. And that's really when we began hearing this you know the this story about the Wagner group began to emerge in a much more forceful way was the need to do an end run around sanctions against Syria but then um, progressively you know once it seemed like it was something that would work out well which it did work out well uh, at least in the first couple of years in Syria uh, you know this model was transferred to Libya, to Sudan. Um, and it's not to say that relationships didn't exist in Sudan or in, uh, in Libya before that. In fact, they did. In the fact, it's, it's, it's those historical relationships that made these military technical agreements with state-run enterprises like Rossborn Export, okay, the primary uh, exporter of military goods and services. Um, that relationship already existed. The difference here is that what Russia wanted plausible deniability for at first, right, in Ukraine was for the existence of these small scale scout groups that were essentially assassinating um, troublesome separatists and trying to get the war back under control during the Minsk process. In Syria, progressively, the mission became... Uh, plausible deniability for offensive operations to seize territory uh, where there were oil and gas interests uh, that Russia was interested in. Same in Libya. Um, So the the reasons for plausible deniability evolved, but generally speaking, um, it wasn't just because they didn't want to escalate. Kinetically, it was also because they were concerned about the repercussions of potential further sanctions for dealing with other sanctioned actors.
1: Yes, on this respect, uh, uh, if we are looking now from a legal standpoint, uh, like we mentioned before, one of the things that set apart uh, the Chinese private security from its Western rivals is that they operate under a Chinese law that forbid its citizens from carry weapons. Uh, Russia has a similar set of laws that bar mercenary activity. And it was a case, if I recall correct, not a while ago that some Russian contractors returning from Syria have been detained by FSB upon their arrival in Russia. But now then, if we just look at the news, the majority are still operating from Libya to Central Africa. So uh, what kind uh, of legal loophole, in your opinion, make this possible?
2: The conversation about the legalization of private military security contractors has been going on in the state Duma, probably for about a decade now, maybe even more, maybe even longer. Uh, I think, you know, you you might even, you know, in talking to some of the Russian contractors out there, they'll probably tell you uh, that anti-piracy measures and programs and pushes during the late 1990s was really the triggering mechanism for that conversation to begin. Um, Because as Russia's navigational lines were imperiled in in Sudan and Somalia, uh, off the Red Sea coast, uh, this question of legalizing private military security contractors began. So first, um, it's important to understand that yes there's a prohibition under Russian law but there's also a debate about the legality and um, I think increasingly as more news comes out as more casualties pile up as more embarrassments pile up that debate becomes progressively more heated though obviously it's difficult to have that um, a shift in policy under the current regime uh, move very quickly so at the same time Uh, You know, Russia is where maybe South Africa was way back in the day, in the 1970s, late 1960s, 1970s, with its thinking on the legalities. And and in fact, it's employing a sort of form of lawfare by denying the contractual relationship between state-run enterprises and the men primarily who uh, get deployed out to you know Syria or Libya or elsewhere. Uh, in reality, the problem isn't necessarily just Russia's. It's also that international law uh, has not kept up with the times. And you know, under the Geneva Conventions, under Article uh, 1 and 2, there are different definitions. But essentially, it assigns this kind of, it has a squishy definition of mercenary behavior and activity as um, doing things for profit, you know, for for financial gain. Um, But all of that is attributed to an individual who makes the decision to pick up arms. That's not today's world. Today's world, um, you've got a pretty professionalized military force out there uh, in many different countries, Russia too. And they're, you know, in in China as in Russia, uh, the state, runs the show and organizations that want to do this kind of work are working for the state and it's the state and state-run enterprises that where the attribution really should lie and I think that's what has to change now with international law but it'll be a while before the law really catches up with reality.
0: If you could move the discussion from the legal side to perhaps the social side I want to ask about the makeup of, of the, the Russian private military companies, because when we were talking to the US and the UK based um, private sec- security and military companies, especially the ones in deployed in the Middle East, they had the people mentioned about how they employed a wide array of international contractors and people from third country nationals, like from Latin America to Nepal. But when we were talking to the Chinese, they said they mainly hired Chinese nationals. What is the case with Russian private military and security companies? And I do not refer only to Wagner Group, but sort of, you know, more broadly. Are there non-Russians that get hired? And even uh, within the Russian contingent, uh, where do majority of the people come from? Are they retired military or police officer? Or what kind of connections do they have prior to becoming, uh, prior to joining the sector?
2: That is such a great question. So we've looked very closely just at the social media accounts of you know individuals who say that they either work for Wagner or are interested in military uh, security contracting and say that they have at some point or another worked in the industry. And, you know, social media can be tough, right, as an indicator. But I mean, we found some trends we thought were interesting. So what we noticed looking at about just 20,000 individuals, okay? What we noticed is the vast majority of them, of course, came from, from Russia. And then when we looked f- you know, in further, just city by city, we, we saw uh, that many came obviously from St. Petersburg uh, or the St. Petersburg region, the Moscow region, but overall, many seem to have some sort of allegiance, and prior military service in the southern and western military districts of Russia. Not exclusively, um, but that was one of the predominant markers that we saw when we were looking at the social media footprint of individuals who made a claim to be soldiers of fortune. Uh, That makes sense for lots of reasons. One, uh, we know that those are the operational headquarters for working primarily in the Middle East, for deploying uh, to the, what's called the near abroad. So the Black Sea region, uh, and then the, the Middle East and North Africa. So logistically, it makes sense that you would try and draw. We also know that historically, those are the areas where uh, there's been a big draw for counterterrorism operations in places like Chechnya, uh, in Tajikistan, the way back in the day, uh, and even Afghanistan, way, way, way back in the day. So, you know, from a sort of line of control or not line of control, but a a, a sort of lines and legacies perspective, all of that makes sense. Um, But there are a lot of individuals who are drawn from outside of Russia. And primarily, you know, from the places you would expect Russian speaking parts of the world. So uh, we saw a lot from Ukraine, uh, quite a few from Kazakhstan, um, a small smattering from Kyrgyzstan Um, a significant amount from Serbia, and interestingly, also Germany. (laughs) Um, But, you know, who knows what that's about? Um, You know, Moldova is another place. Uh, So, you know, we do see a predominance of Russians. I'd say the second largest provider, as far as we can tell, is Ukraine. Uh, And then, you know, progressively on down Kazakhstan, um, and then some of the other sort of smaller Russian-speaking post-Soviet republics. As you mentioned, social
1: media uh, can be useful and at the same time can be a daunting task in doing this kind of analysis. I think just in these days, there is quite uh, an interesting story to follow about uh, a Wagner uh, contractor that wrote his biography, and now is not sure if we are going to see the light of this book uh, or not. But then I would like to still orient the discussion on the role of perception and of course avoiding biases. Uh, I would like to move away really from the conventional biases that in the strategic domain, uh, Russian play chess, Chinese play Wei Qi or Go and well, Americans play football. Uh, Now that uh, when we are talking about Wagner group, uh, Russian strategic deception and hybrid warfare uh, always uh, take into account uh, the overquoted Gerasimov doctrine. But in my personal opinion, and especially in the Middle East, the Russian modus operandi follow closely a previous strategic approach that is part of the Primakov doctrine. Uh, What's your opinion on the matter?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely think there's been absolutely an overblown case made for the Gorasimov doctrine. Uh, And I think there's been a lot of debate about that amongst Russian specialists. And ultimately, I think it was Mark Galliati who was the first to coin the phrase, uh, the Gerasimov doctrine, and that he sort of rejected that whole idea when he realized he'd kind of created this Frankenstein um, that outside folks who maybe are not as specialized in, in Russian affairs kind of mistook and ran away with. Um, there is much greater com- continuity, as you say, with Primakov, uh, Primakov doct- doctrine. What is that exactly? So, um, here we're talking about, uh, you know, the role of the first sort of big towering foreign minister uh, from Soviet times, uh, very influential, Yevgeny Primalkov, an Arabist by training, had been a journalist, um, lived and worked in the Middle East, knew Syria like the back of his hand, knew Libya like the back of his hand, understood Egypt, um, really was kind of a an eyewitness to all of the most major events that took place in the 1960s in particular in the post-colonial period. And that very formative experience um, is something that he brought with him to foreign affairs. But he also happened to be uh, the head of KGB at various junctures. He was the deputy president. He was going to be considered to be the president at some point to replace Yeltsin. Ultimately, it was Putin who uh, took Yeltsin's place. Um, And that was often thought of as, as Primakov's last gift was to push Putin forward uh, as his own sort of acolyte. Um, there's a lot of debate about that too, but nonetheless, um, what's the principle of the doctrine? That Russia must always have influence and the ability to navigate the waters of its near abroad. So that's the Black Sea region, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, and it must always have a path through those navigational waters uh, far to the far east. And so, and that that lesson is taken from, you know the great Russo-Japanese war of 1905 in which Russia was defeated primarily because it didn't have that passageway. Couldn't uh, quickly deploy, couldn't find ways to maneuver uh, along the seas. Increasingly, you know, for the Soviet times and even in the post-Soviet times, these navigational channels just for as a for all great powers right um are critical to to trade and to the stability of the economy uh, in russia and and primakov's view was cultivating uh leaders in the middle east was uh you know objective number one for russia's military stability uh, and its economic survival
0: to continue this discussion about perception um, when we were earlier talking to uh, speakers from ISOA or Icoca, and even the Chinese industry, there's an indication that they said that the industry suffers from from a Hollywoodized caricature of of mercenaries. That's kind of merchants of death. Um, is there a similar portrayal of private military companies in Russian media? And in your opinion, is there a mismatch between how they're perceived and what they actually do on the ground?
2: That's a very interesting question. You know, in terms of mainstream media, what we have seen since again, the emergence of the mythology around the Wagner group is one increasing acknowledgements of the phenomenon, uh, you know, that had been denied, right? so. Uh, in the news, you see uh, you know, reported stories of men who had fought for the Wagner group and then came home from Syria wounded and trying to recover. Uh, you know, maybe in the magazines, on TV. So the story uh, you know in the mainstream is kind of penetrating, but I wouldn't say it's saturated, right? it's it's on social media, you know, on Vakontaktia, on Twitter, on YouTube, where the story of, and the mythos, and the imagery, and the perception of Russian mercenary life comes to life, basically. And there you see, you know, just a, a massive proliferation, a glorification of actually that very stereotype, you know, the tough guys who are out there uh, living their wildest dreams, you know, living their uh, most beautiful, you know, bachelor boy uh, army lives essentially. And there's a lot of nostalgia for uh, the time when the Spetsnaz were at their, at their strongest during World War II, uh, which is when they first of course emerged. Uh, there's a lot of nostalgia for Chechnya, which you see Kind of in a lot of the social media, um, and unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of deep. I think uh, what I think signs of deep post-traumatic stress disorder in this cohort of of military actors, uh, a kind of obsession with very graphic violence. Um, that not to say that it doesn't exist elsewhere, but there have, there are a number of signs where you see a kind of glorification. Of very graphic violence, trophy violence, performed violence that is, I think, definitely disturbing.
1: Now, as you mentioned, quite uh, interesting, this approach looking at the glorification of stereotype. Uh, one of the stereotype following I'm in question is that Russian contractors are always depicted as a blunt instrument uh, that always use an excessive amount of force when needed. Uh, but then uh, we are witnessing uh, from all over part of the world uh, a trend among uh, private security and private military company uh, that is moving toward the cyberspace, uh, so-called cyber mercenaries. United Nation is looking just now uh, at the role of cyber mercenary in a conflict area and in non-conflict area as a role of non-state actor, but for state uh, uh, purpose and uh, agenda in, in the cyber arena. Uh, In this respect, cyber mercenary showcasing sophisticated uh, uh, kind of uh, services and uh, Russian hacker group are well known operating independently for profit, for nationalistic impetus, or even as a covert operator for GRU or other government agencies uh so uh looking at this trend do you see in the near future that russian uh private military companies uh, offering this kind of cybersecurity service
2: so that's the hybrid part people are very confused about what is the hybrid part the hybrid part is not that uh, some forces are plausibly de- de- deniable that's that's not the hybrid part the hybrid part is that you? You do have situations where there's a pairing of um, what we what we call political technologists, who are you know political scientists, sociologists, uh, anthropologists, you know, social scientists with some training in understanding kind of the culture and milieu of politics on the ground, uh, you know, in given regions. Uh, so we saw that. Definitely in the case of, of, of Libya, of course, the most famous case being Maxime Shugali, who is still uh, imprisoned, a St. Petersburg sociologist who was deployed forward uh, before a major offensive involving some Russian mercenaries uh, just outside of Tripoli in 2019. Uh, and ostensibly, he was just there to do some survey work. In reality, it seems like he was also there to do some forward operating for social media influence campaign you know, psychological operations to sort of soften the population uh, and understand, you know, what kind of messages are, were going to work in the lead up to and probably in the middle of this offensive that was going to be paired with Wagner and Khalifa Haftar. So that's just one of many examples. Uh, I don't think that the Wagner group, which is really just a fiction a shorthand, uh, is alone in this kind of packaging uh, and pairing of kinetic services or just critical protection services along with some forward social media, strategic communications and messaging and influence operations. I think that's very common, actually. What is, I think, increasingly worrying, yes, is this trend toward pairing those types of political technology services with um, sort of your standard military protection and or you know forward operation services with attacks on critical infra- infrastructure in advance of or in the middle of an operation. Um, that's some dangerous stuff that, again, because there isn't a lot of transparency, a lot of ownership. In fact, a strategy that is meant to actually manage escalation risks only increases it. Because you cannot attribute, you know, particularly where the target is a Western target, let's say in Europe or the United States, um, there's a temptation, I think, on the other side to have it, well, it's the Russians, they did it. Uh, and, you know, that can re- result in some big mistakes. I think there's a real danger that this sort of threefold package ultimately is a strategy, it's a recipe for escalation instead of managing escalation.
0: Speaking of escalating conflict, if I could get you to speak on a specific incident that was, you know, in the, that covered the headlines in a lot of places, I'm specifically talking about the Battle of Assam where a group of Russian soldiers, officially classified as volunteers came directly into American military's line of fire. And the incident raises an important problem of international coordination between private military. Do you think such problems will necessarily plague private military in the future? About how do you, how do you tell sort of another another international contingent when sort of everything is going behind doors? About you know, look, we're going to be here, we're going to be practicing here, or we're going to be in this up in this field. Is there a better way? of coordinating between the different private security companies, private military companies, the international forces, and so on.
2: So that's an interesting scenario uh, that happened in in 2018. In Syria, we had a clash of Russian mercenary forces on the ground near uh, a ConocoPhillips plant, a gas plant. It was a sort of major prize uh, in Deir ez that everybody was trying to get after basically in control and it actually had been contested um, throughout the Syrian civil war right up into the point where this clash occurs in in February of 2018. Interestingly you know a lot of people don't know this but there was actually like a coordinated effort between the United States and Russia that had been going on for a good nine months to try and ensure that this kind of incident didn't happen so there was a what was called a U.S.-Russian deconfliction cell uh, that operated uh, primarily out of uh, Kuwait with some coordination uh, forward in, in Chaimem in the Syrian um, headquarters for, for the Russian forces. So for months, while you know, Russian forces and US forces were deployed on the ground, chasing ISIS primarily out of, of Mosul, you know, out of Northeastern Syria. There had been this daily conversation going on. You know, what I, my understanding is that, in fact, there were a number of probing attacks or, or probing operations along what was a dividing line along the Euphrates River that the Russians and the Americans had agreed on. And the Russians kept coming out of the box as it was described to me. Um, They kept probing the edge to see where they could get because they were keen on pushing the Americans completely out of Syria overall. And instead of having the Russian regular military do this which of course would have been an extremely escalatory uh, move they had contractors doing it and that was the plausible de- deniability piece, which, well, we don't know. You know, Yes, we're there, no, we're here. Um, even just months before the February 18th, uh, 2018 incident, in September of 2017, again, deconfliction cell, trying to coordinate. There was an incident that wound up with casualties. Uh, in that case, it was Syrian casualties on the American side. So, you know, but that was a rare instance. In, in Libya, there is no deconfliction cell. Right Now there's no American troops on the ground as, at the moment, but you can see that this, this lack of um, communication, coordination, at least acknowledgement of private military security contractor operations on the ground can become quite dangerous and can escalate things. And that's exactly what we've seen, I think, in the Libyan case where there is no fail safe. There is no means to mediate basically. So to answer your question, yes, that would be great. But I don't know, you know, how you would incentivize that for militaries that are are working with private contractors.
1: I mean, it's quite worrisome, uh, as you mentioned, uh, this uh, recipe for escalation. But uh, without focusing much on. Of- our talk on Wagner Group now, uh, there is still a plethora of Russian private security and private military that operate abroad. But it was quite peculiar uh, in uh, your writing, the fact that you mentioned that are also fake Russian private security company. And they are a part uh, of Russian disinformation campaign. I mean, it doesn't come as strange because disinformatia is a (laughs) typical Russian word. But uh, I would love to have more uh, comment on this respect.
2: Thank you. Right. So part of the diversion here is who's doing what, right? And we've seen all kinds of different stories popping up, sometimes on social media, sometimes on sort of popular, often Ukrainian channels um, online, right, um, bloggers on different channels that are of interest primarily to military watchers, they'll they'll cite somebody, it'll be the Patriot group, you know, suddenly, and then a picture of somebody, you know, popping out, you know, up from the parapet. Uh, There was a Patriot group, there was SHIELD, and there are a lot of different contractor groups out there. But it's not, it's not right to categorize them as, you know, 20 different blackwaters it's not 20 different blackwaters it you know it's 20 different contingents for one state-run enterprise in one particular region Uh, yes there's a lot of diversionary disinformation uh, about you know who is doing what and nobody understands exactly how all this works and in fact the Wagner group itself is a disinformational fiction, you know, it it primarily refers to legacy operations for um, particular companies. I think I I won't get too much into that, except to say, um, you know, most of the the better ones, the better well-known ones, you know, Rossneft, you know, Techborne Export, uh, Rossborne Export, you know, big companies, STG, that operate in, in heavy industries that need to have critical protection for their service delivery. Some operate in a more you know, offensive orientation, but that's very area dependent, right? Um, RSB Group, which, you know, I think you may end up talking to, uh, they're very well known. They mostly do maritime work, but the reality is they are also in Libya. Everybody knows that. They're in Libya. They have been working on demining. Some people say they're mining while they're demining. Right. So um, yes, there is a lot of fiction at play and it's quite purposeful. Again, it's, it's about sort of shrouding, not necessarily just the operational piece, although that's important. It's really about the sanctions evasion. It's really about the fact that the business model today for Russia and the Russian military and contracting process is to work with you know, dictators and authoritarians who have come under some sort of sanction, no longer popular, or there's some concern about their human rights record.
0: Uh, I mean, you've mentioned uh, Libya and Sudan. If I could go, you know, we could go just a bit more south. Uh, there's news coming out that that Russian private uh, uh, military companies or security companies are involved in sub-Saharan Africa as well to a certain extent. How would you compare their role in those areas to what we see in, let's say, Libya or Syria? Are they similar in terms of their practice, their demographics, their relationship to the host state or even to the home government? Or do you think that the different context, where it's not an active you know, uh, security risk environment or sort of it's, it's a different kind of risk at least, um, does that does that fundamentally change how they look or how they work?
2: So it's hard to kind of piece together the Africa story, except one thing that's really important to note is that there's kind of a connection between Libya, Sudan and the Central African Republic. Um, so geographically, they have a lot of, obviously proximate to each other. There's also Chad uh, is slightly in the mix. What do, the, what do all of those countries have in common? Well, big mining resources and importantly gold is, is a key resource that uh, is, is of critical concern for Russia. Why is that, we wonder? Well, uh, Russia has been under sanction from the United States, from the EU uh, for Ukraine for the better part of almost a decade now. And even before that, there were a number of individuals and companies that were also uh, scrutinized, right, for their activities and and under sanction. Those sanctions have been very costly and Russia has kind of adopted a new strategy to try and do what it can to balance out the fact that it cannot draw in hard currencies like the dollar, it's losing its reserve currency. Um, And so gold is the new reserve. So a big motivation for a lot of what we're seeing is, well, those are places where gold can be mined, other precious metals that are useful and um, not as fungible, right? <laughs> as, uh, as the dollar is today in, in the Russian Federation. So typically the pattern is yes, in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, the attachment contra- contractually is usually to some sort of mining enterprise or some sort of oil and gas enterprise, not exclusively, but generally, so unlike the Chinese, where there's a lot of road building going on, there's a lot of dam building going on, the primary industry attachment is around natural resource extraction. Um, there's a, there may be some exceptions here. Uh, you know, one obviously very big one is of course, arms delivery. So again, where there's a military technical agreement, state to state, Russia to Central African Republic, um, you know, where Russia actually gained an exception, uh, to sell, I think, a bunch of AK-47s and you know, small arms, essentially, to, to CIR, despite the fact that there's a UN um, provision for sanctions. Uh, it did get a waiver, uh, and it's since giving that waiver, it has tried to expand its footprint there and has been successful. Um, in Mozambique, same deal. It's an, It's an oil and gas scenario there, too. Uh, Madagascar, same deal, oil and gas. So that's the primary... Um, relationship, and that's who is drawn to that work, essentially, people who have experience in in training, uh, you know, local contractors as well to do, to guard, uh, you know, places of importance.
1: No, when you just mentioned uh, mercenary and extractive industry in Africa, it immediately came to my mind uh, the time of executive outcome uh, and all the stories around blood diamond, But now if we move from Africa and the Middle East to an area more near to us, that is Singapore. Singapore is a very attractive port and one of the leading logistic hub in Southeast Asia. And most of our previous guests foresee an increasing role for Singapore, uh, especially in the insurance uh, sector related uh, in the kidnapping for ransom or anti-piracy. It's a very niche but profitable sector. And as well as a possibility for Singapore in becoming uh, an increase with increasing space as a regulator hub for the Asian private security market. Uh, do you see Singapore as a competing ground for the provision of made in Russia private security service?
2: Very good question. Actually, you know, I, I think people have not examined the question of um, insurance and reinsurance services in and how they fit into the growth of the Russian uh, military security industry. My understanding is actually there are a number of semi-reputable companies, uh, Russian, that have registration in Singapore uh, because they know that they need to be there in order to, to, I suppose, supply their services to insurers who are in the business uh, of providing Um, you know, underwriting, essentially big missions, underwriting, you know, complicated situations in complicated places. So actually, there's probably more synergy uh, between Singapore and Russia than there is competition. But again, I think that bears exploring. Thank you for that
0: illuminating sort of, you know, entire talk, really. Uh, I want to end by asking you a question that we've been asking all of our guests, and that is, what will the future of warfare and security management in a complex environment look like in, let's say, the coming 30 years? I want to see if you can answer it specifically while talking about Russian, uh, you know, private security sector and the military industrial complex more broadly.
2: 30 years is a long time, so maybe I'll try and break it down into bits and pieces. So Russia's private security industry faces a couple of challenges over the next five years, maybe 10 years. The more we come to know and understand you know, about the business model, who is doing what, how the organizations operate, what's the command structure, uh, the more difficult it becomes for Russia to deny it has an interest in the operations of Russian private military security contractors abroad uh, or that there's even a connection between the state and uh, these operators on the ground. And I think that's already beginning to happen. And that's a real challenge. Why is that a challenge? Because we just saw the EU, for instance, um, began to impose sanctions on one of the alleged financiers of Russian private military security contractors for the first time uh, after you know years of the United States haranguing the EU, uh, finally, you know, it has become clear that something has to be done. So there's a policy concern right for, for Russia and whether or not it can continue to operate with this level of intransparency and not incur damage over the long term. I think the answer is there will be damage, it will be difficult. Um, there will also be questions about human rights abuses, and that um, is not going to go away. And in fact, I think what we're going to find, uh, as we see with the MH17 case, with the shootdown over Ukraine uh, of the Malaysia jet uh, liner back in 2014, you know, there you already have civil litigation where there may be a concern for the Russian state because what we know is that it wasn't just a group of, you know, random separatists on the ground in Ukraine. There were probably forward operators who were on contract uh, for Russian state enterprises in the region at that time. Um, I think we're going to see more and more civil litigation from individuals who are impacted by Russian military operations where there's a contracted op, uh, element from a kind of global affairs perspective. There is a risk also that other countries look at Russia's model and say, why don't we do that. And I think you know. Even in the United States, you might find people in the Pentagon saying, "Well, why can't we do that?" Uh, and there and there are reasons you can't do that because a the laws of war, at least uh, as the U.S. administers them, <laughs> simply don't allow for that, um, and also it really causes you know, political challenges in a democracy. Uh, so, uh, but increasingly, I think what you're going to see is it could change the tempo of. What would be small bore civil wars or insurgencies uh, and escalate them very quickly expand them, uh, you know, beyond borders, particularly in Africa. I think there's a deep concern uh, about um, Russia's impact on Africa and it can be quite deleterious if it's not brought under control.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Rondo, for joining us today. It has been very insightful uh, and the best way to kickstart our podcast, looking at the Russian private military influence from the Middle East uh, and beyond. And uh, I would like uh, to conclude this podcast, thank our colleague at the Middle East Institute, National University of Singapore, without whom this podcast uh, would never have been possible. And especially our event and communication team, uh, and our MEI Associate Director, Cascadian. Also a special thanks to all our listener and please follow us on the various social media platform and send us your comment and feedback. Thank you. Thank you.